What's up, everyone? I want to tell you guys about my friends over at GT Nursery. Green Touch Nursery is located at 8842 Park Street in Bellflower, California, 90706. Oscar, the owner of this nursery, is a dear friend of mine and was actually a guest on this podcast on episode number 28 titled The Shed with his brother Edgar. Make sure to check that out. Oscar's been growing plants since he was 10 years old and was exposed to nurseries his entire life. His family owned multiple nurseries, so he grew up working in these places and lives and breathes plants every single day. He opened this place up back in February 2015. They are open on weekdays 8 to 4 and weekends 9 to 3. They specialize in cacti and succulents from all over the world. And let me tell you, with Oscar, the knowledge goes deep. This dude is constantly in the field doing research, going to botanical gardens, getting with really experienced growers and asking all kinds of questions. So you don't just get a plant, but you get the knowledge and passion behind this place. And that can really be felt when you're there. Their mission is to create a community of like-minded individuals from all walks of life that enjoy beautiful plants. I would say they have succeeded in their mission. I've attended multiple plant swaps and meetups. And this place is really like a home base for the for those of us in the local community. They also host these big sales where he brings in vendors from all over the place, really bringing amazing and obscure plants to the table. You need to head over to their Instagram at GT Nursery. I will make sure to plug a link to all of their socials and content in the description of every episode. He does these live auctions every Wednesday evening, and it's a lot of fun. He's constantly uplifting other members of the community and really giving other people an opportunity to come on to this very successful auction and sell plants. I've done it a couple times and it's amazing to see the success that they've had. Oscar and Edgar have really dedicated themselves and honed their craft and have been very consistent with these auctions. It's a lot of fun. Even if you're just watching, it's one of my favorite things to do on a Wednesday evening. You can head over to their Instagram for more info. I'm very grateful to have this partnership and to be telling you guys about this place. Green Touch Nursery, 8842 Park Street, Bellflower, California, 90706. Tell them I sent you. Hello, my plant friends. I want to take a moment to talk to you guys about mushrooms. No, not that kind of mushrooms. I'm talking about reishi, chaga, shiitake, maitake, ergo, cordyceps, lion's mane, all these different mushrooms that have been used for thousands of years in Chinese herbal medicine. It is ancient wisdom that there are tons of health benefits to consuming mushrooms of all types. And I recently started supplementing with this company called Real Mushrooms. If you haven't had the chance to listen to episode 38 featuring Jeff Chilton, I highly recommend it. He is the founder of this company and an ethnomycologist who's been studying mushrooms for a really long time. He really breaks it down for us. Another good resource for this information would be the movie Fantastic Fungi. Definitely recommend that. Or you can just click on one of the links in the description of every episode that will take you to articles that outline all the different health benefits of these mushroom supplements. Now, I'm going to run through all the ones that I've actually been taking myself. So Real Mushrooms offers these hot water extracts that are made from the whole fruit body of these mushrooms, and they come in both powder and capsule form. So I've been taking the five defenders in the capsule form, and it's a blend of turkey tail, reishi, maitake, shiitake, and chaga. Now, all of those mushrooms have been proven to boost the immune system. So who couldn't benefit from having a boost in their immune system right now? Another one that I'm taking is the Mushroom D2Z, which is a blend of reishi and chaga only. It is infused with vitamin D and zinc. Now, the vast majority of the population is deficient in vitamin D. So what better way to get it 
than in these mushroom supplements that come with all these other health benefits. Another one that was recommended to me, but I'm taking in the powder form, is chaga. So chaga has been used to help improve issues with digestion. So if you have something like IBD, IBS, I highly recommend this. I've been taking it at night, mixing it with my sleepy time tea, and I've noticed a huge improvement in my digestion problems. So anytime I'm about to do a podcast, I take lion's mane or right before work. Lion's mane has been proven to help with cognition. It is a nootropic that some studies suggest that may even be creating new neural pathways in your brain. So anytime I think I'm going to have to use my brain a lot, I take the lion's mane. And the last one that I'm taking is cordyceps. So cordyceps are used by athletes for performance enhancement, and they're known to really help with endurance and boost your energy levels. So if you're feeling really low energy, start trying this cordyceps. I'm taking it every day and my energy levels are way up. So that's all the ones that I'm taking myself personally that I can speak on, but there's testimonials for every single one on the website of Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. If you're ready to pull the trigger and want to make a purchase and start supplementing these mushrooms, make sure to click on one of the links in the description of my episodes, or you can go to the link in my bio on my Instagram and click the little button that says real mushrooms and it has a little mushroom emoji, or you can use code if plants could talk at checkout and you'll get 10% off all future orders. However, if you're a first time buyer, you can sign up to get a first time buyer code of 25% off your first order. So definitely do that. It would help me out a lot if you guys use my link and use that code at checkout. So make sure to go check them out. Real mushrooms. This podcast is brought to you by Mezcala Nursery, located at 6901 Orange Avenue, Long Beach, California, 90805. Mezcala is family-owned, family-ran since 2007. This is the House of Succulents growing grounds. I'm talking everything you can possibly imagine in the succulent realm, from your common everyday plants to your more rare and obscure imports. They can service your landscaping needs and they have a bunch of hoop houses dedicated to houseplants and tropicals. If you guys need any kind of plant, I'm telling you, go to Mezcala. If you bring them a price from another nursery, they're going to beat it. If you bring them a price from a big box store, they're going to beat it. 6901 Orange Avenue, Long Beach, California, 90805. Mezcala Nursery. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to If Plants Could Talk. This is Garrett. I'm your host. This conversation took place on October 5th, 2021, with my guest, Shy Plant Mommy, also known as Natalie. Natalie joined me virtually all the way from Chicago, Illinois, where she is currently employed at a plant shop called Sunnyside Plants. They are located at 4800 North Milwaukee Avenue, Chicago, Illinois, 60630. I will make sure to plug links to their socials and website in the description of this episode. Natalie is a dope-ass plant collector that has a jungle of all different kinds of plants, cactus, succulents, tropicals, houseplants, and she really faces the elements and the challenges that one has to face when growing plants in the Midwest. So I really admire the dedication that it takes to do that. And not only that, she is a very admirable human being in that she is constantly dedicating her time and volunteering her time to charitable organizations and really cares a lot about 
inclusion and diversity and it just became very apparent that she's a really good human being. Uh, I'm very grateful she was willing to do this interview. I actually doubled this episode as a school project of mine. I had to interview somebody from a different culture than my own and she did such a good job laying that out and I think it was really fun to have a little more detail about my guest's backstory and you know just to change it up a little bit and of course we talked about plants so I hope you guys enjoy. Here's Natalie. Shy plant mommy is here with me today. Natalie, what's up Natalie? Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Okay, things are things are okay today. <laughs> Aside from my plants got knocked over in a storm, actually, though, life is good. I just got done with a run and was trying to ground myself before this episode. I saw that you like to run. I do. I went for a run this morning. I did some bridge repeats because we don't have hills here, so we have to go over bridges to get any kind of like inclines of any sort. Oh, wow. So everything's flat. Pretty much. Chicago is very flat. Hmm. Hmm. Well, yeah, I'd love to get there because I'd like to start by saying I I looked through your profile, your personal profile, and I saw that you post like a lot of like body positive stuff and a lot of like inspiring goals that you have achieved. And uh, yeah, it's it's really inspiring to see what you've accomplished in the last year is, is about as far as I got back seeing how much you're you're run a lot huh? and you do like triathlons. Uh, yeah, so I've done five marathons um, and triathlon. I've gone all the way up through like half Ironman distance. And then a couple years ago, I started doing marathon swimming. So I did like a 5K swim, which was probably the hungriest I've ever felt in my whole life. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's been an interesting adventure. Wait, wait, so what, why? Because you it was so long, you were like starving? Yeah, like think about when you were a kid and like you would go swimming and you would always feel super hungry afterwards. Uh-huh. Imagine it's like 1,000. Like I was coming in the final stretch and there was a guy on a kayak next to me, like one of the safety people. He's like, are you okay? I was like, listen, I would do some real questionable stuff for a cheeseburger right now. And he <laughs> like I was crazy. And I was like, I'm just so hungry because you can't eat when you're in the water, right? Like you just have to keep swimming. It's not like when you're running a race and you're like, cool, I have gels or, you know, whatever, like bars, something that you're eating while you're running when you're, you just, you keep going. So, uh, yeah, it was like, I've never, I thought I would never be able to satiate that hunger. I was like, I'm just going to be hungry for the rest of my life now. Wow. That's intense. And I really do want to hear more about that and how you came to, to that, but we could start with, where are you from? You're right now. You're speaking to me from Chicago, correct? Correct. Cool. And where are you from originally? So I was born in Detroit. And then my dad, who is a mechanical engineer, got transferred to work in Mexico. Mm. So I lived in Mexico until the summer before fourth grade when I moved back to Michigan, but um, a suburb of Detroit called Livonia, which is like at that time was the whitest city in the nation um, with a population over 100,000. So it was a very unique experience. Um, mm. So I went through high school, and then when I graduated high school, I came to Chicago. I went to Loyola, so I came here for school, and then I've just been here ever since. Okay, okay. Now, what is your parents' ethnicities? So my dad is from Guadalajara, Mexico, and mm-hmm. my mom from Bogota, Colombia. And they, like, when they first emigrated, my mom went to Milwaukee first, and then eventually over to Detroit. 
uh, my dad right to Detroit and they ended up meeting while they were in college. Mm, now, full disclosure for the listeners, I'm also um, doubling this episode for a school project of mine on uh, underrepresented members of society, uh, of somebody of a, a different culture than myself, being that I'm Filipino. And uh, so we decided, and Natalie volunteered to do this for me, and I'm very grateful that you did. So thank you very much. And we're going to get into that culture and heritage a little bit here in the beginning. So uh, how do you define culture? What is your view of what culture means? What does it mean to you? Yeah, so it's kind of a lot of things, right? Because like part of it is sort of your heritage, like your background, what you kind of grew up with. And that can be like ethnicity, like what country you come from, but also sort of your religion, because those things sometimes coexist, maybe sometimes don't. Um, and then also kind of the hobbies you pick up along the way. So it's all of those like different pieces that kind of fit together that society kind of like groups depending on whatever it is. So like, you know, like nerd culture is its own separate thing. And, you know, obviously there's popular culture and whatever, but it's just kind of like the norms and different things that make up those groups that you're a part of. Mm-hmm. And how do you identify your own culture as So I identify as Latina first and foremost before anything. And then I do kind of sort of fall into some other subgroups as well. Um, But the main definitely like first and foremost Latina. Mm -hmm. Now, did you get, do you feel like you were more heavily influenced by one parent than the other? I do. um, And it's funny because like I grew up in Mexico. So I got a lot of that just from like things around me. But in terms of like one parent, definitely it was like my mom so the Colombian side like and people always joke they're like oh you grew up in Mexico but you're way more Colombian um and even the way I speak I don't realize it that like Mexican Spanish and Colombian Spanish there's different words Mm. and I often like which one's which until I'll like the other day I was at a Mexican restaurant and I tried to order something and he's like I don't know what that is and I was like that's how we say scrambled eggs in Colombia but I guess not for Mexican (laughs) So definitely significantly uh, more influenced by my mom than my dad. Okay. And is that like a different dialect? I know I'm familiar with like Castellano, right? That's one dialect of Spanish. Is Do they speak like Spaniard type Spanish in Colombia as opposed to Mexico? Not, not necessarily, but a lot of um, Mexican Spanish is influenced by indigenous words, Nahuatl words. Mm. So anytime you that ends in like ate or ote, that's like a specifically Mexican word. So like straw in Mexico is popote, but in Colombia it's pitillo. So there's certain words and like whenever it's like that, I can usually tell the difference, but sometimes I just don't even realize that words I'm using only people in Colombia use. So um, Mm. kind of weird, but a lot of it, like in terms of Mexico, a lot of it is um, indigenous influence on the language. Okay. Did you speak Spanish in your household growing up? I'm kind of a mix. My parents definitely um, speak predominantly English, but with my grandparents, I speak Spanish. So a little bit of both. I kind of grew up speaking both equally. Um, And when I first moved from Mexico to the U.S., I had an accent, but kids are mean and bullied me a lot. And so eventually uh, lost my accent along the way. Mm, Was there there like that um, shame or like embarrassment to speak your native dialect or like you felt like you had to... um you know, conform with American culture? I'm not necessarily. I mean, I never felt embarrassed to speak Spanish, but I did get a lot. There was a lot of negative feedback, especially like when we first moved back to the U.S. 
my mom wa- um, was like campaigning to get Spanish programming added to regular basic cable. Cause like at that time it was something that you had to pay extra for. Mm-hmm. She was like, you know, useful in classrooms or, you know, like could really be enriching for people just wanted to add at least like one Spanish language channel. And so, you know, she was like getting signatures and whatever. And people were so, they were like, Oh, you need to learn to speak English and all this other stuff. But like, she was speaking English to ask people to sign this petition. Um, And so even like really simple things that, you know, like why would somebody be mad about adding Spanish language, you know, channels, but even that was a big deal. So um, my parents like always encouraged it. And so I always, you know, spoke Spanish and never felt embarrassed by it. But I did notice that people would react differently if, you know, I was out shopping with my grandma and spoke Spanish to her that they would interact differently with me than if they didn't hear me speak Spanish. Mm, mm. And I asked you to bring a, a cultural item of significance, something that you identify with your culture. What did you bring to show me? So I have two things. Um, the one behind me, my grandma who just turned a hundred a couple weeks ago, she actually made this. So it's, I don't know the best way to like show it off, but it's all, like hand sewn she makes all of the things and it basically depicts agriculture in Colombia so it's like all the different like fields and stuff so she puts all the people like the houses there's the obviously like the little like birds in the pond um so this is like this type of artwork is really common in Colombia and so this is like one of my fondest memories is you know with my grandma when I was little was like helping her put things together. We would like, she would try and find miniatures of things. And if she couldn't, she would just make them. Um, so this is like my pride and joy piece of artwork right here. It's like, I mean, one of my favorite things just cause it kind of shows like how agriculture was so important because my family used to own a coffee farm in Colombia. Mm. Um, so huge influence on my life, but also just, you know, like having a piece of artwork that, you know, is like a family heirloom that my grandma made that, I now have. Um, And then the other one, I actually don't know what this plant is, but um, it's like some kind of, it has like some variegation on some of the leaves. Mm. As far as I can tell, it's some kind of Amazon lily and it's in a pot that's from Mexico. Okay. So um, the plant though is from Colombia. When my grandma and my mom emigrated to the U S my grandma, like, it's a bulb plant. So she snuck some bulbs in her shoe when they came <laughs> to the US and like started a plant. And then when it got big enough, she took some of the bulbs, separated it, gave it to my mom. My mom has two giant plants. And now I also have the section of that same plant that like is now generations old from Colombia, but in a Mexican pot. So it kind of like combines both things. But yeah, I don't actually know the name of this plant. <laughs> No, that's beautiful because that'll live on. And man, how cool that you still have it. And your mom has the big one. So, yeah, my grandma still has hers. So it's like now she's, you know, separated it for different people. It's like, you know, other people have different kinds of family heirlooms. And we have this plant that no one knows the name of. Mm. But now you can pass it on, too. And the quilt, too. Yeah, that's rad. Very cool. So can I ask you like what your cultural definition of or what maybe how you were brought up to think of success? 
Yeah. So I definitely, both of my parents are like super hardworking. My dad, especially, you know, um, after my mom got pregnant with my older brother, like was, um, stayed at home, but like success has always been like, you set a goal and you achieve it. Right. Whether that's, I want to, you know, um, run a race, like, or something small, or whether it's like getting a job or anything, it's like picking out what something is and then achieving that. And then, for me personally, like that's kind of what my parents instilled in me. And then me personally, I feel like sometimes along the way, the success isn't necessarily when you reach that goal itself, but like the things you learn along the way as well, because like, that's also a success, right? Like when you're learning things about yourself mm. and sometimes like adapting and realizing that maybe that's not actually what you wanted. And there's, there's success in that as well, like figuring out who you are and what makes you happy and like your best self. Um, so really at the end of the day, it's kind of sort of that like evolution of who you are and what you're able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have any eating habits or rituals that are specific to your culture? Do you cook any Colombian food, Mexican food? I, I do. I cook both. Um, one of the things that like, I always think is funny that is definitely a Colombian thing is like, we eat a ton of soup, whether it's like 90 degrees outside or nine degrees, like soup is always on the table. And I think that's also pretty common of Mexican culture as well. But like in Colombia, where my family's from, it's like in the mountains. And so oftentimes it's even super cold in the morning. So we have like a breakfast soup that we eat all the time, wow. uh, soup for everything. So that's kind of one of the things that I've noticed, like I always thought was normal until I was around other people. And they're like, what do you mean? There's no breakfast soup. That's not a thing. <laughs> Um, so that's like one of my favorite things to make, but yeah, I oftentimes end up mixing kind of like, I'll make, you know, something that's, I'll make like arrachera, but then I'll make Colombian rice and just kind of, you know, mix and match. Cause that's what I grew up with at home. Like a fusion of both your cultures and your meals. Yeah. That's really cool. Awesome. Uh, so what was it like living as a child of two, two immigrants from two different countries? You know, it was funny because a lot of times they would kind of like throw things in each other's faces. Um, it was sort of like a rivalry almost, except <laughs> not like not a true rivalry, like sports rivalry, because yeah. like my dad doesn't care about soccer. So like that was never a thing. Um, but it just, you know, it was kind of funny, like to the back and forth between the two of them. Um, but it's also really interesting. I feel like I didn't necessarily have like the typical experience of a child of immigrants mm. in that. Like, you know, with speaking with friends that their first generation to be born in the U.S., a lot of what they did was like translating stuff for their parents or like helping with paperwork or different kinds of things that kind of made them become very adult very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I did not have that experience at all. So like my parents were both very well established. Like my dad has a master's in engineering from the University of Michigan. So like he came yeah. to the U.S. We're getting this work like I'm going to make things happen. And so in a lot of ways that afforded me a lot of privilege that first generation, you know, children don't necessarily always have, mm. you know, whether it's, you know, I already had two parents that both went to college. So there wasn't as much mystery around, you know, even that transition of somebody going to college and what that looked like. So I had very different experience than a lot of my friends that I've spoken to about it. Um, but in a lot of ways that also, you know, there's misconceptions about like what an immigrant should look like or what they can do or accomplish. Yes. And 
I think it kind of also worked against my family in some ways. And that like, when we moved into the house that like I grew up in, in Michigan, people thought that we were the landscapers. Like they refused to believe that my parents could afford the house that we live in because they were immigrants. Mm. And so, you know, people had all of these preconceived notions about what we should have been or what we needed to be. And even though we kind of broke out of that mold, it's still like people wanted to hold us to those ideals. Mm. Now, did that drive you to want to prove them wrong? Do you think that that pushed you at all in your life or young adulthood? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that continued for for a lot of my life, especially like in high school, I was really competitive in basically everything. So like I made varsity as a sophomore, like I was on the model UN team. I also, you know, had a a 4.0 GPA, like I got a 32 on my ACTs. I like pushed myself to, you know, you know, my parents got here. I want to take it to the next level. But then I constantly had people telling me like, oh, you don't need to worry about things like you're lucky now you'll get into whatever college you want because they need to, you know, hit a quota. So you don't, you know, if you get in, that's why. So it was like a constant thing that even no matter how hard I worked, somebody would find a way to use my culture against me to discredit what I was doing. And like, oh, well, you only got this because you were given some kind of extra help along the way, even though that never happened. But people just assume like, oh, well, you know, you must have benefited from something and that's why you've been able to do this rather than like just accepting and acknowledging that it was hard work on my own behalf. Wow. That sounds like it would have been really challenging. Uh, Definitely frustrating. Yeah. What, what you were just talking about misconceptions and that's one of my questions is uh, from your perspective one of the one of the most commonly held misconceptions about people of your culture or cultures uh definitely i mean um and they're always kind of conflicting also like people have this like oh mexicans taking a siesta under a tree and whatever but then people also are like oh mexicans are stealing jobs and all this other stuff so it's a weird like either we're lazy or we're not like at least pick something that makes sense. Um, But that kind of also fed into, you know, experiences that my parents had that people sort of always underestimated them that like, oh, well, if you're immigrants, you're Latino, whatever, you know, that you're going to work in agriculture, some kind of like manual labor. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But it's like, when you go outside of that, then people feel like you're invading their space, right? Like, Mm. especially people who are in a position of power, they don't want to give up that power. So when they see people that are not like them kind of coming into those spaces and in some, you know, sometimes doing better than them, it, you know, um, causes a lot of friction. And I think that's also where a lot of those continued misconceptions come from is like people trying to enforce those stereotypes to try and keep the power that they have, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask what what is it that that you're you're doing uh, in your professional life? Uh, so it's kind of a funny question. I for quite some time was doing field marketing. I worked in the spirits industry, so I used to work for Pernod Ricard. So I worked on their uh, mainstream portfolio. So it was like Jameson, Absolute, Malibu, Kahlua, Chivas, mm-hmm. Altos and Avion Tequilas. And obviously, that all kind of fell apart during the pandemic. Um, you know people weren't going to bars anymore because they weren't open. Mm. And so I kind of had like a major shift and now I'm sort of figuring out where I go from here. So in the interim, while I kind of 
figure out a new path because I tried to, you know, like when I got laid off from them, I worked for Anheuser-Busch for some time, but was still just really unhappy in that work. Um, so right now working at a plant store, actually, while cool. I kind of realign and figure out, you know, where I go from here. Uh, what did you study? I was a double major in international studies and political science with minors in anthropology and Latin American studies. Wow. You are an overachiever, Natalie. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd be a diplomat. I was like, yeah, I'm going to like work for the UN. It's going to be great. And that's not where my life took me. But, you know, stuff happens. Yeah. Um, my final question in this area is, is there anything that you would like to share or uh, for, uh, have others know that we have not discussed here about your culture or socioculture group with which you identify with or which you have been ascribed? Um, I mean, not necessarily. I guess just don't tie people to what, you know, they're like, don't try and force people into boxes, right? Just let them show you who they are rather than like, oh, well, if you're part of this, then you must be this. And that's true for kind of everybody. Just like take them as they are, because while part of them might fit in that box, like life is not, you know, that clean, that black and white. So really more than anything, just be open and not try and like force things that you kind of your own misconceptions onto other people. You're absolutely right. Now that's, I did our, I I was going to ask you about racism, but based on some of the things that you just mentioned, it sounded like you did experience some prejudice and some discrimination because of your race. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so like I mentioned earlier, um, the town that I grew up in was the whitest city in the nation. It actually was a sundown town. So um, it's interesting that it was so close to Detroit and yet uh, historically black people were not allowed to be there after the sun went down. Um, and so a lot of that kind of mentality carried through even when I was there, like growing up. And a lot of things like, you know, there were small things here and there that I didn't necessarily realize that I, you know, that things were happening to me. And it was because of, you know, my race, culture, heritage. Um, I just was like, oh, this person's a jerk. And then now as an adult looking back, I was like, wow, people were extremely racist there. And I did not realize how bad it was until I sort of got out of it. Mm. But the worst experience, oddly enough, happened in Chicago. So I had a really weird transition in that like growing up in some in a place that was basically all white. I was very other like everybody was like, Oh, like, what are you? Where are you from? Like, I never quite fit in, even though, you know, throughout the years, obviously, without even necessarily meaning to assimilated quite a bit to, you know, the culture that was around me, which was white culture, you know, obviously, my speech pattern, you know, all of that kind of changed and sort of assimilated to what was around me. And then when I moved to Chicago, I was like, great, this is going to be awesome. Like, I'll get to be around, I'll get to see other people that are my own culture, other cultures. And when I first moved here, everybody was like, oh, but you're white. Like, I lived my whole life around white people and was not white. And now I moved here. And so it was such a weird experience that when I finally thought that I would fit in somewhere, I was still other. Um, So it took Mm. a long time to kind of find my way through that. And I, what I thought would be like the most safe place to kind of explore different things, obviously in college, um, I was the president of the Latin American Student Organization on campus. 
And one day I was like waiting for a faculty member in a hallway outside of their office. And I, Loyola is a religious school. It's Catholic. Um, and mm. so there would be, you know, services throughout the day. And so there was a woman who just, you know, happened to be there for, for mass. And, you know, she was sitting in the same hallway and out of nowhere, she just starts going off on me. She's like, you know, I can't believe that you're going to take a job away from somebody one day just because you speak Spanish. And there's so many of you Mexicans that if anything happens, we're just going to have to start killing you all. I mean, she goes on like this super like long rant. And I'm like, I'm just sitting here waiting for somebody. And it was such an eye opening experience because nothing that blatant had ever happened to me. You know, it had always been these kind of small microaggressions, different things here and there. But to have somebody to like see that hatred in their eyes and that vitriol to just like to say that like they would people would have to kill Mexicans because there was too many of us. It was such a weird, surreal and on a college campus like that this woman was just here. And thankfully, you know, the faculty handled it really well um, and and did make sure that I was OK. But it was just a very eye opening experience. That was the first time I realized like that there are people in the world who just because of the way that I look like will truly hate me and will not even, you know, acknowledge me as human. So that was a really difficult experience to have, especially when I was still kind of like figuring out who I was. Mm. And I, um, I ended up joining a Latina sorority. And so this is like, now there's all these different cultures. So my mom used to joke, she was like, yeah, you came back with more roots than what you left with, because now I had different bits and pieces of like Dominican culture and Puerto Rican and all this kind of like blend of things. Um, But yeah, it definitely like that kind of like high school, college transition was really difficult. And I had a lot of weird experiences of like both ends of like your other because you're brown and then like your other because you may look brown, but you're really white. So it was like I never took a long time to kind of find where I fit in. So it sounds like you turned back to your roots as a result of that, like they pushed you away from this quote unquote white culture and you really went back to your roots and learned more about your own heritage. And and that's that's beautiful. Uh, also, I was going to say something about, um, oh, have you experienced I was going to say, have you experienced now reverse racism when you're in a, a group of people of color and say they're uh, predominantly Spanish speaking? Uh, did they, have you ever turned on you and been like, oh, well, you're whitewashed? Um, I mean, well, I guess there's kind of like two parts to that. Like me personally, like, I don't think that reverse racism necessarily exists. Like people who are of an oppressed group, like can't be racist necessarily, like inherently by definition, but there were a lot of times that I felt like judged or there was biased against me, especially even now it still happens because of the way that I speak. People are like, Oh, you know, you talk so wide or different things like that. So it's not quite as much anymore, especially because I can code switch a lot better now. So there's, you know, my regular everyday, like customer service voice vernacular. And then also, you know, obviously a lot different when I'm around friends. So it doesn't happen as much anymore. But definitely when I first moved to Chicago, it happened quite frequently. And it was always confusing to me that sometimes people would be like, oh, well, you're not Mexican. I was like, I lived in Mexico. Like I grew (laughs) up there. And it was people who had never been there saying it to me. I was like, it doesn't like this does not compute. I don't understand. So, you know, um, it was definitely a, a strange 
experience to hear that, especially as someone who's first generation to be born here, but then grew up in Mexico to have people tell me that I was white. I'm like, but, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. So, so in your opinion, uh, there might, there must, there could be a different name for it, a, a different title than reverse racism. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure how I would classify it necessarily, but obviously like misguided bias for sure. Um, sure understand and that and that's something that happens in a lot of cultures right that like if you speak eloquently then like all automatically you you are white but like why do we ascribe speaking well to whiteness like that should be something that can be inherent in any race or culture so i think there's still a lot that we all you know collectively need to unpack um that like why do we ascribe those qualities to white people when those can be you know anything but that's that's a much longer conversation for for a different day. Yeah, I was going to say the million dollar question is what can we do about it? What can we do about racism in this country? You know, <laughs> where yeah, where I would mean, we start? There's there's so much, and I and I'm, it's interesting because also that was something that was confusing for me when I first moved moved to the U.S. So like in Mexico, obviously there's black people, but like it was never necessarily like, oh, this person's black. It was like, oh, they're Brazilian or, you know, whatever. Mm. And so when I first moved to the U.S., somebody asked me if I was black and I didn't understand what they were asking (laughs) me. And I was like, I was a little kid, right? Like I didn't, I had like no frame of reference and I didn't understand that people are so like, you know, you need to fit into these different boxes of things. It was so, I even like went home and I asked my mom and she was like, well, no, she's like, you are a person of color, but you're not black. And I was like, okay, but like, what does that mean? Like, what, why would somebody ask me that? Yeah. And to be fair, I was significantly darker as a little kid because I was outside all the time, but it still was really bizarre um, that like, you know, that frame of reference that kids here grow up with that wasn't necessarily the same experience that I had growing up in Mexico. So like yeah. race was a weird, a weird thing. And my, pa- like personally, my parents, you know, have a, like a very diverse set of friends. And so, you know, that was something that I also noticed about like kids I grew up with. Like once I moved to Michigan mm-hmm. that like it took years before they actually made friends with a black person. Like that was, that right. was something that didn't happen. And I was like, what? There's a ton of black people in my life. Like there's all kinds of, you know, my parents have all kinds of different friends. So I was very fortunate also in that, that my parents definitely, you know, my mom was a social worker. And so that was like very important for her. Um, but yeah, it just, you know, it's like when people don't have any frame of reference for things, they just go to what, you know, they've been taught by their parents, which isn't, isn't always the best. Sure. Yeah, we could start locally at like the community level, but also then you look into the institutions and all all the racism that it has existed there. Like I'm studying psychology right now, for example, this class and all of the acknowledged people in psychology's history are white. Every one of them. So anybody that contributed to psychology of that was a person of color or gay or of any other group, their story wasn't told. And so like going back and like elevating those voices is super important as well so that we don't just have this one category of of our history even. That's that's how all the stories are told. 
are from the perspective of white people. Yeah, and even how those different voices are intersectional, because I think that's like also people are unwilling to acknowledge that people can, you know, belong to several different groups and often only like think of diversity as like, oh, well, we need to have people of color to make it diverse Mm. when you need to have differently abled people. Like what, you know, what is the outreach for people that are deaf or blind or different things or trans people, you know, it's like, there's all of these different things that, that make up diversity. That's not just solely based on race. And I think that sometimes gets lost along the way of like, when you're trying to amplify and uplift those voices, make sure that it's truly diverse, not just based on race, but also all of these other factors as well, because all of those voices are important and matter and contribute different things to the conversation. And we're equally as underrepresented, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for exploring that topic with me. Now, let's talk about plants. Where did plants come into your story? <laughs> um, so plants have kind of always been a part of my life. Obviously, I mentioned that my family used to own a coffee farm and my grandma was super into plants. So my mom, you know, that's why I like now I have a family heirloom plant. Um, mm. But growing up, people used to joke that my mom's living room used to look like Jumanji because she has like in my parents' house, there's like huge vaulted ceilings. And so we, they were just always around. And then it really, for me, kind of started to hit home where like I grew a personal interest was um, probably about like 15 years ago when my cousin Frankie passed away and we inherited his Monstera mm. and watching it grow to this like nine foot huge plant in our living room. And it was my favorite. Like I absolutely loved that plant so much. And so that was kind of my first love was like, you know, before that, when I was younger, I would try and like, if I'd go shopping with my mom, she'd let me pick out a plant and I would pick things that were pretty. And that did not necessarily lend well to a small child taking care of it. So I was like, oh, violet, sure. Except obviously I killed them. So all the things like when I was younger that I tried to pick up, I wasn't very good at taking care of them until I got older Um, and so that's really like, I think the turning point for me was when we got my cousin Frankie's Monstera and then, you know, like here and there, obviously it's a little difficult in Chicago, especially when you rent an apartment. So like, I would always have like an herb garden or little things, um, and you know, like a, a respectable collection of plants. And then when COVID happened and I was home all the time, now I just like live in a full blown jungle in my apartment. So um, and, and it's funny that like, even my collection of plants, it's like half of it is tropicals, which I consider like the Colombian side. And then I have a bunch of like cactus and agave. So that's kind of the Mexican side is like, they're still kind of blended in my apartment that I would say the collection's probably like half and half. That's cool. You can still associate the plants with your, your heritage. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of, you know, like my mom is definitely mostly drawn to tropicals. So like she has, you know, a lot of, she has different philodendrons, Monstera, although she did just on Facebook marketplace found a baobab tree for $35 and it's like eight feet tall. So now she has this giant succulent tree in the living room as well. So she's kind of starting to branch out, but growing up in Mexico, you know, everything I saw were like these giant, beautiful agave plants, all these really cool cactus um, so, you know, that's kind of like, I've, I've been drawn to both equally, you know, I feel like it's kind of like in the plant community, like rep your set, like you got to have your like one or the other. 
and people generally don't have necessarily a lot of, of different types of plants, but yeah, mine's probably evenly split between arids and tropicals. Now you said baobabs. That reminds me of the book, the little prince. I don't know if you, the little prince, they talk about baobabs. His, his, uh, his planet is infested with baobabs. Have you ever read that book? <laughs> I've never read it, but I'll have to check it out. My mom, oh. like my mom's new favorite. She's like, Oh, my Rafiki tree, blah, blah, blah. Like she loves that thing. She was so excited about it. So next, like in the spring, um, I'm going to try and see if we can air layer a piece of it. Cause the woman she got it from her daughter grew it from seed 20 years ago and she was selling it because it doesn't fit in their house anymore. She's like, you know, I'm getting too old to keep taking it outside every summer. It's just unmanageable. And she seemed really upset to be, you know, parting with it. So I told my mom, I was like, well, obviously it's too late now. You know, it goes dormant in the winter, but in the springtime, we can try and air layer it and see if we can get it to root, you know, a piece of it and give her a piece of the tree back. Mm. Um, so I have no experience in that, but if anybody does holler, let me know because I've got till spring to figure out how to air layer a baobab tree branch. So tell me about how it's been trying to get plants to survive in the Midwest. Have you had to have had like a lot of trial and error? Oh yeah. I mean, I definitely, it took a long time to figure out even now as an adult, like what works, I am a chronic underwaterer. And mm. so out, you know, obviously I have like probably like 30 varieties of snake plants, but even my tropicals, like my Monstera, any of the other stuff that I have, um, I've kind of sort of trained them to not be as needy when it comes to water. Mm. So I probably water a lot less frequently than most people would. But that's also why I don't have any sort of terrarium type plants like begonias are not my jam. They do not survive in my apartment um, or anything that, you know, really requires a lot of humidity. Mm. Uh, and then we'll we'll see how things go this winter with the setup I have for my cactus, um, everything that I had last winter did well, but I have some new friends this year. So we'll see how it goes. I've already brought everything inside since some of the temperatures at night have already been dipping down into the like low fifties. Mm. Uh, but it's definitely, you know, it's always a journey, like figuring out what works for your style of care yeah. and also, you know, like the environment that you're in, like if you have radiator heat, and it's like super dry in your apartment, maybe tropicals are not the best fit for you. So just, sure. you know. So how are you keeping them warm in the winter? Uh, well, my apartment usually stays pretty warm. And then I have for like where the tropicals are at, there's a humidifier. And then all of the arid plants are all under grow lights. Mm -hmm. So um, every like everything is a way for the most part away from windows um, or any kind of like draft that might come in. Um, some stuff is in my West facing window. Um, and I just kind of keep a, an eye out for when the weather is going to be really, really bad, especially at night. And I'll just take stuff out of the window cell since I know that like these windows are old and drafty. And then just like in the morning when it's not as cold, I'll put them back in the window. So mm. is it hard to get plant tips from people like care tips? Because you have to find somebody that lives in your area for it to be like accurate. Um, yes and no. I mean, I think at this point, especially like I'm a part of the Chicago Cactus and Succulent Society. So mm -hmm. a lot of folks in that group have already kind of done a lot of trial and error. Sure. Um, still like 
I guess also, you know, when you're in places where stuff stays outside all summer long, there's not as much change, but like everybody's home is different inside. So even getting care tips from people in the same city isn't necessarily always helpful because, Mm. you know, people have radiator heat. Some people don't like depending on if you're in a high rise or like I'm in a garden unit. So even that changes things quite a bit that a lot of it has been, you know, I try my best and we see what happens and I kind of adjust if something isn't quite working, but um, yeah, like everybody tries to be as helpful as they can. It just isn't necessarily always like relevant to, to your own situation. You got a lot of question submissions. Are you down to start fielding them? Sure. Cool. So the first one comes from XOXO Andy. Okay. She she said Midwest growing tips. (laughs) Um, I mean, obviously pay attention to the weather. I think that more than anything, if you have anything outside or if you have anything that are in windowsills, like be cognizant of what the weather is going to be like, because while you may be warm in your bed at night, your plants on the windowsill could be freezing. So that's something that people don't always necessarily think about is that like that window is going to have a draft and it's going to be pretty cold. Um, So just that's like, I think how a lot of people lose things or like even transporting a plant, like they bought something new that like, if it's cold enough, that one minute walk to your car can be enough to, you know, do some serious damage to your plant. So um, I always tell people to like take insulated bags, you know, the like grocery bags mm-hmm. that zip up if you're going to go plant shopping to make sure that, you know, you're keeping your plant safe. Cause like, you know, we, we get to below zero temperatures. So sometimes even just taking your plant from, from the store to your car can, can be tricky. So uh, that's, I think one of like the biggest things. And then also picking things that work for your apartment. If you have a super humid apartment, like obviously, Hey, maybe calatheas are going to be your jam. Uh, not mine personally, but like work with your environment. Wow. You guys face a lot of obstacles that I'll never have to face here. It's crazy. I, I'm like, it's incredibly inspiring that people like persevere through those kinds of things just for their love of plants, you know? It sets you guys apart, honestly. And I think that's really cool because that's dedication that I don't have. That's, that's, that's thing. Somebody like somebody locally the other day posted about bringing their plants inside and somebody commented and they were like, bring them inside? Like question mark. And I was like, yeah, like we don't we can't leave stuff outside year round. here. I mean, if it's planted in the ground, that's one thing. But yeah, it's it's a whole thing of like, OK picking the right day to take your stuff outside, acclimating it back to direct sunlight, and then, you know, kind of watching the weather to make sure it doesn't rain too much, you know, all in a short period of time, because sometimes Chicago can be like that. And then also watching to bring stuff back inside. We definitely, you know, it's, it's not for the week here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, indoor growing tips. I mean, I think that we kind of explored that a little bit. Yeah. Most underrated succulent. Ooh, coming with the hard questions. I feel like, I don't know, actually, I'm trying to think of like what, probably aloes, 
aloes are another one of like my first loves. Like mm. my mom has a very prolific aloe vera that just like gives and gives and gives new plants all the time. Yeah. And so I continue to like pull pups out of my plant and give it to people. And uh, it's a, like a good starter plant to kind of teach people, but people often forget, especially because it's so easy to find. I feel like aloe, not just aloe vera, but other aloes in general are definitely super underrated. For sure. It grows like a weed. I have a candelabra aloe plant that came from my first house. I bought the house in like 2009 and left in like 2012. And it's like the last piece of the that memory that I have still. And it's beautiful. I love that plant. Um, this is still XOXO Andy. Let's see. How do you keep track of watering with so many plants? <laughs> um, well, basically like the cacti succulents, especially when they're outside for the summer, I noticed that for the most part, just like whatever the rain schedule was tended to be enough. Oh, wow. Now that they're indoors, um, I'll definitely have to like keep an eye on it a lot more. My plan is to just like check on the first of the month to see how everybody's doing and kind of adjust from there. As far as the tropicals, generally like every two weeks or so, um, some of them like needed a little sooner, um, but I kind of know who my problem children are that I need to check on more often. Um, and I just, you know, if I'm ever on the fence about something, I'll just use the moisture meter, but I try to sort of keep everybody on the on a same schedule to make it easier on myself. But you're not like strict in like keeping track of exactly playing it, listening to the plants. Rather no, than... I'll tell you, like, it's not like plants don't know a schedule. They're not like, not like a dog where they're like, right. oh, it's 5 a.m. This is my breakfast time. Like, I need to eat right now. Plants are kind of, you know, like maybe one week is more humid than it was the week before and they didn't dry out quite as quickly. Like your, your plants aren't on a strict schedule in terms of, especially as we move into winter and there's less sunlight, like they'll need water less often because they're not drying out as quickly. So I've never, I mean, even in my like personal life, I'm not like a super strict type of person. So mm. yeah, my plants, I'm like, Oh, Hey, you're looking kind of droopy today. Let me give you a sip of water. So it's definitely not, Maybe don't take watering tips for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate the the not taking it too seriously thing. It's supposed to be fun. And uh, favorite planty place in Chicago doesn't have to be a shop. I uh, hands down, my absolute favorite place is the Garfield Park Conservatory. Like that, especially in the winter time when it's like frigid temperatures outside. Walking around and getting to see all of the beautiful plants, like. Garfield Park is unmatched. Like the fern room is amazing. There's even little turtles that live in there. There's some chihuly glass that's in um, one of the other rooms. Like it just is incredible. And it's my favorite place to escape and get to be around a bunch of plants. Very cool. Tell me about the plant shop. You just started working there recently? Um, I've been there for about a year. I started working okay. there when I was working full time. And then now... Um, I'm only at the plant shop. So it's called Sunnyside Plants. And the owner, Anne, this is kind of like her COVID pivot, I guess, so to speak. So she started off by selling plants on her front porch. And that's how I met her was like, there was an agave that I wanted because there was a, an artisan who made these custom planters for us for Altos Tequila. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, I have this really cool, you know, pot. I need an agave for it doesn't have to be a blue Weber, like can be any agave because obviously 
I'm not going to be making tequila. Like, I just want to have an agave for it. So I went to her front porch and bought an agave from her. And, uh, you know, on Facebook and whatnot, we had connected. And so she was going to be doing a couple pop-up events. And I was like, well, I have free time. I'm furloughed from work. So if you need help, like, I'll, I'll come through. So that's sort of how it started. And then, you know, she did really well at the pop-ups. And that gave her the confidence to open her own shop. So she opened Sunnyside Plants, and uh, then I, I started working there. And now we actually, just a couple of weeks ago, moved into a larger space than the original shop that we were at. So super exciting. It's been fun. And I've learned a ton also from other people just, you know, coming in. And sometimes people would ask about specific plants. And like, I'm not an encyclopedia. Like, I don't know all of the things about all of the plants. So even trying to help people through things and looking stuff up, I've learned a ton yeah very cool agaves are really hardy but i would imagine it's hard to meet their lighting requirements where you guys are at so that must be some work well so the shop actually like is a corner space and gets a ton of sunlight uh-huh. um or at least it has i guess we'll see how winter goes but um last year through the winter we did have to supplement with quite a few grow lights in the shop yeah. to keep it happy um, so yeah, I mean, we have things set up obviously where like all the arid plants are in the front window, which gets the most amount of sunlight and kind of, you know, um, move some other things around. And I'm sure as the days get shorter and we get less and less sunlight, we'll probably continue to move things around to make sure that everybody's happy getting the optimal amount of sunlight. But it's definitely a challenge in Chicago, um, you know, with, uh, sure. changing. So that's another thing that like we'll have to figure out is now that we're at the corner space, we'll have to kind of figure something out where to kind of block the doorway to keep wind from getting inside. Cause like when people open that door now, there's not really anything shielding it. So to keep the plants that are inside safe, cause you know, people opening that door over and over again, those plants that are close to the door obviously would be in danger of mm. having some damage. So we're going to have to, before it gets cold, figure out some kind of, you know, um, like wind door type thing to be able to try and keep it as warm as possible, which yeah. you guys don't have to think about ever. <laughs> <laughs> the next question comes from Cactus Dan, man. He said, where would you like to see plants in habitat? What plants would I like to see in where, habitat? Where would you like to see plants in habitat? Where? Uh, I mean, everywhere. Um, we're talking tropical or desert both that I mean I'm a person who travels pretty frequently mm-hmm. um and I guess equally so like I love seeing stuff in Arizona but I also love seeing tropical plants like I went to Belize and I love like kind of being you know in the rainforest and seeing those things so I can't that's like picking a favorite child actually I don't know what that's like because I don't have children but I imagine <laughs> would be similar so all of the i want to see all of the plants in all of the places (laughs) all of the plant destinations well then that brings us to our next question she's not going to want to answer it cactus danman asked favorite plants sorry what was that favorite plants what are your yeah it just says favorite plants what are your favorite plants um obviously my plant that i don't know the name of which um i should maybe just give it a name like fred or something and then i can be like oh fred's my favorite plant that my aloe vera my monstera 
Um, and then I recently got a Gio Hintonia Mexicana um, cactus, which like is from the area of Mexico that I grew up in. Mm. Um, and that's the only place where it lives. So um, that's also a new favorite. But yeah. I thought you weren't going to be able to answer that question because you said that it's like picking a favorite child. So I figured you were going to be like, I don't have one. <laughs> uh, well, I have like a top five. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mucha Magia said, how do Latinx moms just know they don't have to do anything special to their soil? Uh, this is 1000% true. Like some of the stuff that my mom does, I'm like, I don't power your plants alive. Mm. She has a ton of no drainage, her cactus, like she has um, a cactus cutting we got from somebody who's like a friend of the family. It's in Miracle Grow cactus soil and has been growing like crazy. Like she does not follow any conventional rules whatsoever when it comes to this is how this plant should be grown. Mm. And yet somehow everything thrives. Like it looks like she sprinkles crack into her plants. Like everything just <laughs> takes off and I don't understand it, but I feel like it's an ethnic thing that like, yeah. she just like innate connection to the plants and they just, they take off. It's, it's very true and very confusing. And I'm like, when do I get that? Like, is that inherited? Is that coming to me one day? Because I would like to be able to not follow the rules and still have things thrive. Yeah. Some people just have that natural green thumb for sure. Uh, they don't have to check their watering or check their humidity levels either. It was a continuation of his last question or their last question. Botanic Cycles said, how do you keep yourself focused when training for a new challenge? Oof. I'm kind of a few different things. So I'm a person that like I always every year kind of set like a big, hairy, audacious goal and work towards that throughout the year. Mm. So one of the things that I always remind myself is to like be patient with myself because whenever you're training for something, there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. And I try not to hold myself to any certain standard. Right. So when I have those bad days, I'm like, Hey, you know, this is part of the process. And who knows what I'm going to get on race day, right? You know, it could be a good day, could be a bad day. Mm. I just, you know, the most important thing is that I show up and I be present and I give as much as I can in that given day. And that might be slower or it might not be as much distance as I should cover. But um, that has definitely helped me to not feel quite as overwhelmed, especially when I do any kind of like long distance training. Because mm. like, I'm like, training for a marathon sucks. It's awful. Like, you just want to be done. You're like, I don't understand. I lost a toenail. I'm hungry all the time. Like, you know, it just, it gets really frustrating. And a lot of it is not even necessarily physical, but mental. It's just convincing yourself to continue to show up and do the work that you need to. Um, and reminding yourself that, you know, it's, it's a journey that you should enjoy and it's a process and you discover a lot about yourself throughout that. Um, which also translate kind of to your regular life. Like after I did my first half marathon, I felt like there was nothing that could stop me. I was like, I'm applying for a new job. I'm going to do all these things. Cause I had this kind of like change in mentality where I realized that a lot of the limits that I thought that I had were imposed by me. Like those were not real limits that existed. Mm. And I was the one holding myself back. And so once I kind of broke through that, 
and did something that I didn't think I was going to be able to do, I was like, oh, well, then now I can I can take on more. I can do other things. I can take on these different challenges. And even if I sometimes fall short, like I still learn things along the way. So um, but one of the biggest things by and large is like to be patient with yourself um, and not try and, you know, like when you get overwhelmed, that's when you want to quit and and give up, especially during training. So to try and be patient with yourself. Mm, love that. What is a good book you'd recommend? Ooh, this is like the deep cuts. I was we're, not. We're almost done with the questions. <laughs> I'm huh. trying to think of like the lot, like something that was very like good read or. Uh... I mean, I think I'm going to throw it way back on this one only because I feel like this was the book that made me fall in love with reading mm-hmm. and also kind of like make believe and everything else was like the lion, the witch in the wardrobe mm. is probably all time favorite book, just because I think that was the first time I realized that like books could open you up to different worlds that, you know, you could kind of escape from your day to day and really made me want to like, just keep reading all the time. So you like fantasy? Uh, I do. I mean, I kind of read a little bit of everything. Um, I mean, I don't know if you can tell, I have a lot of like weird artwork as well. Yeah, what's going on there? Um, but uh, I don't know. I just like weird stuff. But I I help run an art charity auction. That's actually I'm flying to New York tomorrow morning. Um, so it's at New York Comic Con. We like collect original artwork from comic creators and then auction it off, and all of the money goes to St. Jude. So mm. I don't much fantasy anymore, but I'm very involved in comics. So yeah. Wow. Thank you for carving out the time to do this before you fly out to New York. Oh, I mean, this is like good downtime to like kind of have a break calm before the storm, because once I get to New York and then getting stuff ready for the auction, it is like nonstop go. So this is like a very nice chill time to kind of relax before I head there. But I mean, even once I'm there, I love it. Like we've raised $683,000 for St. Jude so far. So Mm very fulfilling work, even though it is very chaotic when I'm there. (laughs) How do you balance all of this? Like, do you have a self-care routine? Is there something that you're, you're doing to keep yourself grounded through all of this? Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely like huge believer in self-care. So whatever, you know, sometimes that's like taking naps throughout the day. Sometimes that's like treating myself to a meal that Mm -hmm. I've been looking forward to, like trying a new place. Um, so it doesn't always look the same. It's not like this is my routine and I follow this to take care of myself necessarily, but just kind of like acknowledging what I need in that moment and and letting myself have that, whether that's, you know, extra rest or something else or exploring. Like one of my favorite things is to explore different neighborhoods in Chicago. Mm. So I'll just drive to a different neighborhood, park my car and go for a walk and just like take everything in. I, turn my phone off. I like block everything out and just kind of like be in that moment and be, you know, like connect with whatever is around me. Cause it makes me feel really grounded. Mm. Um, so definitely all of that is all super helpful to, you know, kind of take a break, like take a deep breath, sort of reorient yourself when there's a lot of hectic chaos going around. How interesting that you go to other neighborhoods. To walk. Mm-hmm. I said, that's so interesting that you will go to other neighborhoods to walk. 
Well, I mean, because there's so many different things in Chicago, especially like during COVID, mm-hmm. like you couldn't go, right? But you could be outside and just walk around. So that's what I would do. You know, like Pilsen has a ton of murals. So I would just park at one end and like walk all the way down this stretch that has a ton of murals on it or mm-hmm. Chinatown. And there, I didn't even know that there was a memorial park that's beautiful. Like it's literally tucked away. You would never find it unless you were actually looking for it. Um, and that's one of my favorite places because I go and I like walk laps around, then I walk and I get bubble tea and then I drive home. So, you know, it was just a way to kind of like see what different parts of the city are like. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it was a little sketchy. I'm not gonna lie. I didn't always pick the best places to go, but it just, you know, I feel like you get so caught up in always, you know, the same kind of like, this is where I go for this. This is where I go for yeah. that. And you never break out of that routine so especially during COVID I forced myself like I'm going to go other places like I want to see other parts of Chicago it's a huge city with so many different things to offer tons of great art you know that's how I found like you know random little cafes or places where I would stop to eat after I would go for a walk so it was it's it's been great and now other people will see my pictures they're like oh what was this place I'm like well let's go for a walk I'll show you so very cool yeah it's very therapeutic. It's like cultivating discomfort is something that they, they recommend in like trying to achieve personal growth. And it sounds like maybe you're not consciously doing this, like trying to put yourself in a state of discomfort. But uh, that's what I hear when I hear you say about like the running. That's that's not comfortable. Running many, many miles is not comfortable. Going to a strange area is not always comfortable, but there's uh, something that you're gaining from it, you know? That's cool. Uh, Botanic cycles. What have plants taught you that can be applied to all of life apart from patience? I definitely that like you kind of just have to like go with the flow of things that try not to like take things too personally, like plants die. It's going to happen. And I think people sort of see that as like a personal failure. Mm. And I don't like That's something that, you know, helped me kind of let go of a lot of um, like pressure that I used to have on myself that like everything needed to be perfect all the time. Mm. And I think plants helped me realize that like sometimes there's beauty in just letting go and letting things kind of happen the way that they need to. Like Mm. you don't always need to, you know, it's not always that you did something wrong if like a leaf dies, like that's part of its cycle. And so, you know, that's, that's the same as us. I think we hold ourselves to such a high standard that we are unwilling to like, Oh, I can't like let myself down or, you know, the people around me or whatever. And, you know, stuff, stuff happens. You just kind of got to let it. And, uh, it, it took some, some dead plants for me to realize and learn that lesson, but, uh, you know, just try and and not take it too seriously. Mm, Well, to be perfectly honest, that, that was, uh, something that I probably needed to hear today because I, to be honest, I don't feel like my best self right now. I'm mourning my pottery and my plants and just kind of like shocked and like bummed out. But, uh, hearing that, you know, hopefully I can go face this right now and just take it for what it is and keep it pushing, put, put everything back together, you know, do my best. So thank you for that. Um, cactus Dan, man, final question to like you know maybe stage them differently and try something new and you know yeah 
as an opportunity for something new rather than lamenting what was. Yeah, absolutely right. And that's something that I thought I was like, oh, maybe I can do this plant in this pot instead. Um, anyways, Cactus Downman, this is our final question. How did you meet Ann and Tim from Sunnyside Plants? Sorry, what was that? How did you meet Tim and Ann from Sunnyside Plants? Um, well, Tim is Ann's husband. So I kind of did talk about how the first time that I met Ann was because I went to her front porch to buy an agave and she jokes that I just never left. Um, but it was funny because I didn't realize at that time that like people were so lacking of interaction, like especially social interaction that whenever they would go to buy things from her porch, like people would just hang out for like a half hour or more. Mm. And I was still like, it's a pandemic. And so I literally like went, bought my agave and I was like, cool, thanks, bye. So it was kind of funny that it sort of took a little bit longer to build that relationship with Anne. But funny story, also talking about lessons with plants. The thing that I think kind of really sort of solidified our friendship was Anne had previously posted on Facebook that she had some Monstera Adansonii cuttings. Mm -hmm. And so I messaged her one day, like super frantic. And I was like, hey, um, do you still have any of those cuttings? She's like, oh, no, sorry. You know, they're all gone. I was like, oh, okay, thanks. She's like, oh, why do you need them? Because she is one of those people that always tries to like pull information out of you to like get the full story. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I accidentally set my plants on fire. And so I don't know what. What? (laughs) Uh, That's life. I literally set my plant on fire on accident. And so I, I was like really upset about it, wanted to replace it. Um, but it made a full comeback. It's doing very well now, uh, which also now I always tell people, I'm like, if you want a hardy plant, you can literally light your Adansonii on fire and it will come back. But it was because I was like burning this candle and a friend came over because I was giving him some Santa Rita cactus pads. Mm-hmm. So I was like outside talking to him, whatever. And when I came back, the candle was just like fully one flame. Like it wasn't just like the little wick anymore. The entire container was solid flames and me in my infinite wisdom thought that I could put water on it to put the fire out. And all it did was create a giant fireball that like floated in my living room. Um, So it burnt my Adansonii. There's like one section of my burro's tail. That's like all singed still. It's like all brown. It never recovered. It just doesn't grow on that side. Um, so yeah, so I accidentally lit my plants on fire and that's really when Anne was like, wow, you are a crazy person. We can totally be. (laughs) (laughs) So that was really like, kind of, I think when things turned, so we had already met previous to that, but after that, like, she just thought it was the funniest thing. Um, and we kind of like our, our friendship built from there and Tim, her husband, he's also into plants. So he comes into the store often. Um, and I'll sometimes go and hang out at their house while like hang out in their backyard. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how that all happened, which again goes to say that like sometimes stuff's going to happen and maybe all you get is a really funny story, but maybe things will bounce back, but you know, (laughs) that happens. That's a first for me. I've never heard of anybody that lit their plants on fire. Uh, Certainly not on the podcast. I'll try and find some pictures to send to you because it was really entertaining uh, afterwards. <laughs> I mean, it was 
literally just like little stems and there was like all the leaves died it just wilted uh but it bounced back it's still alive to this day wow resilient yeah wow so do not recommend your plants on fire what <laughs> what's next for you what, what are you working on right now and then we'll plug where people can find you but I, i'm interested to hear what what kind of because you're so goal oriented what what's next so one of my like big things that I'm working towards that I'm hoping I can make happen is I really, and this is kind of like long-term, not sure how I'm going to pull it together. I really want to host a women's triathlon on the South side of Chicago mm. to especially encourage women of color to get involved in sport, especially triathlon and endurance sports. So that's like, Back in January, I uh, moderated a panel about diversity and inclusion in triathlon. So a few of my friends, like one, she is Black and Latina, and she's Muslim, and she's a triathlete. Another friend who is trans and an athlete. And one of my friends who is the first person with dwarfism to finish a full Ironman. That was like my panel of people. And we kind of talked about, you know, different things. And it made me realize that, you know, what... I want to do at least for my own like personal fulfilling work, not necessarily as a career, but is to get more women, especially women of color, you know, being active and doing different things. And I think that, you know, hosting a triathlon, especially on the South side of Chicago, which is typically an area where a lot of events aren't hosted. Um, that's like, that's my big dream that I've been kind of sort of chipping away little by little to put the pieces together to make that happen. So, yeah, I'm excited. We'll see how everything goes. <laughs> cool. Anything else? Um, I mean, I've kind of, like, checked off all the big, like, race things because I do not have the desire to do a full Ironman. So that's not in my life goals. But, um, yeah, I have, like, a, a half marathon, some other stuff coming up. But nothing in terms of, like, super big, scary goals for, for races. Unless somebody comes up with something, I am open to ideas because I am always down for ridiculous ideas. Cool. Well, is there anything you want to plug? Like website? Uh, Do you have a website or anything like that for any of these? Uh, I don't. I'm not that fancy. I used to blog and then I just stopped. But Sunnyside Plants, if you're in Chicago, come check us out to buy some plants, um, which is sunnyside.plants and then Obviously, I'm Shy Plant Mommy on Instagram. Um, if you want to get involved in any of the like 27,000 things that I mentioned, if it seems interesting to you, let me know. Always down to have people join my adventures. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank All you. Right. Shy Plant Mommy, everybody. If everyone could please like, review, and subscribe to the podcast and hit that share button, I would appreciate that greatly. Bye. Check, 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 check.